Hello, everyone, and welcome to On Crime and Punishment, a podcast from the Center for Criminological Research at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Haggerty, one of our faculty members, will be talking with Dr. Nicole Myers, an assistant professor of sociology at Queen's University, about the changes to the bail system in Canada that have resulted from the COVID-19 pandemic. And as always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. It's available through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, and most other podcast apps. You'll be able to find it in those as well. Also, follow us on YouTube, youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research. We have some great content coming out this summer that you won't want to miss. Welcome everyone to the next installment of our discussion with Canadian criminologists about trends and dynamics related to COVID and the criminal justice system. We're very happy today to have uh, uh, Dr. Nicole Myers, who is a professor of sociology and criminology, I believe, at Queen's University. And uh, she's going to talk to us about a range of things related to courts. So thanks, Nicole. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, maybe just a good place to start is for people who might not know you or know your work. Uh, just give us a sense of who you are and the types of things that you're interested in. All right. Uh, well, as you did indicate, yes, I am an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Queen's University. Um, I'm a criminologist by training. Uh, my interests have primarily focused on bail and pretrial detention, um, but certainly expand much more broadly to that to general criminal court processing, sentencing, and the administration of justice. And here I mean um, sort of charges against the administration of justice, but also the way we administer justice in that court process as well as sort of the surveillance and social control we have in the community that's tied to that court process. So I think we're going to talk a lot about courts in terms of the, the big picture. We're going to move into talking about COVID-related stuff. But from your research, I mean, what are some of the big concerns in Canada right now relating to sentencing, court processes, that kind of stuff? Uh, I think I think one of our most pressing issues and why I think I've spent so much time studying bail is that we have more people in our provincial jails that are to be presumed innocent than are in our provincial jails having been convicted and sentenced to be there. And those populations crossed over for Canada generally in 2005, uh, for Ontario in 2001. Um, and this has continued relatively unabated. The most recent data shows that Ontario and Alberta are indeed neck and neck with close to 70% of our provincial jails holding in pretrial detention. Um, and I think sort of related to that then and sort of my concern around that is, is thinking about the kinds of conditions we impose on people when they're released from custody um, and how those conditions effectively criminalize non-criminal behavior can be really difficult to comply with, especially for a long period of time. Um, and so in many ways, in my view, release on bail actually ends up sort of facilitating more detention by people being brought back in for failing to comply. Um, I think we then see those kinds of issues spill all the way through the criminal justice system as what happens at the bail stage is incredibly important for plea bargaining for sentencing. So going for the your first point, Maybe for people who aren't familiar with kind of the vagaries of Canadians' legal legal system, can you explain how it is that we have more people, innocent people, incarcerated than people who've been convicted? How how have we ended up in that kind of a situation? 
Oh my goodness, isn't isn't that the question? I mean, it, unfortunately, there's not one one single answer. It's a lot of different things. It is police discretion where they have the power to release and they can impose conditions. But about half of the time, at least in Ontario, where I'm most familiar, they're holding people for a bail hearing. And so they're waiting until they come to court. In court, we have a bit of a risk adverse mentality. And I think that we see that risk aversion with police as well. So there's nervousness or reluctance to be the one to make a decision out of a legitimate concern that maybe this decision turns out badly and this person goes on to do something really big and really serious um, and people being reluctant to be the individual to make that decision and also thinking more broadly about what that does to the reputation of the criminal justice system when these kinds of things happen. Right so a mix of things often related to sort of risk averse uh, institutions Absolutely. And, then, and sorry, I was going to say one, one sort of last piece in, in, in the bail process. I mean, the Crown being such a, a major driver of the process, um, seeking you know supervision or seeking other kinds of conditions and meeting those kinds of requirements can take a, a lengthy period of time. So you have people in pretrial detention who have had their bail denied and they're going to stay there until their charges are resolved. But you have a lot of people that are there simply just waiting for the decision. They're not going to be there long, but nonetheless, they are still in custody while they await. Right. So transitioning to sort of the COVID situation, I know you have done some preliminary research in this area, but I'm intrigued both about, you know, what you've been finding, but generally your sense of general trends relating to the courts. And I'm just curious, what, what do you see have been some of the more interesting, surprising, disconcerting developments kind of uh, related to COVID? Yeah, I, I think sort of the background to that is two incredibly important pieces. Where one, where we see custody as being an inherently risky place, and so in the context of a pandemic, we then see that there are sort of some some serious efforts to try to engage in some decarceration um, and try to remove people from this space. Now, did it go as perhaps as well as it could? No, but there were efforts in place to try to dis. And all of this came to that recognition that. In detention, you can't engage in physical distancing. There is not proper personal protection equipment. And in particular, in the context of both remand and provincial institutions, you have people funneling in and out of these spaces a lot, which means there's not only a lot of contact within the institution, but they're bringing that risk back out into the community when, when they return. The other thing is, is that the court has always operated in person, where traditionally speaking, we would require everyone to be physically present in court to have their case heard. And in the context of a pandemic, when the courts shut down, you had an institution that has in many ways been resistant um, or slow to uptake some basic technologies as email and video conferencing or, or conference telephone lines. Um, and so that real and serious struggle of trying to uptake those kinds of technologies in a really quick fashion. And so as you can imagine, it was it was not smooth. So do you have any sense of what that looked like in practice? Yes. So the only way to observe the courts, um, or at least bail court, because everything's happening remotely, is to call in. Um, and that in itself ended up being replete with challenges. The difficulty of, of finding this phone number that you're supposed to call, um, it's not publicly or readily available. That even once sort of into the space, you may not be let out of that sort of waiting room and allowed into the actual hearing. So you're sort of perpetually um, waiting to be let in. And then other challenges around poor sound quality, people talking over top of each other, people coming in and out, an inability to know who's talking. And so it was really difficult to sort of follow what was happening and add in some dropped calls and you're left quite frustrated. Have the Has this been acknowledged? I mean, is this something that they're, they're recognizing that this presents a problem or does life go on as, no, as normal or how? <laughs> 
I wish I knew the clear answer to that. I, I would like to think that this is something of a high priority and we would be seeing improvements made, but at what are we 11 months in now? And, and bail court didn't go back to in-person even when we did open restrictions. So they've stayed in this virtual format yet the technology has not necessarily um, been improved in the way that uh, in the way that you'd hope. I also was just reading about court reporters, however, talking about how incredibly difficult this is as their jobs are to record the proceedings and to generate transcripts and that there are very big chunks of that record that they can't hear. And we can see this being enormously problematic that this particular tool, this is the only thing we have that lets us know what transpired in court on a particular day. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we'll get back to the, the, the realities of COVID. But I was thinking as a researcher, I mean, one of the appeals of studying courts is that major parts of courts are open. You can go in and you could observe. I mean, what are the implications for doing research now? I think, you know, I think the implications are enormous. I mean, the sort of the shuttering of, of the courts sort of really touches at a lot of fundamental principles we have about an open court system. This idea that it's to be open, not only so people have their day in court and test the allegations and the status to demonstrate it, but also as a really important check on state power, where this is our opportunity to hear what has the state done? And are they able to demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that you did or did not do something? And so by shutting everything down to for public health reasons, we have effectively precluded the public, researchers, the media, I think, get some greater access, but still not that same experience of simply walking into a courtroom at any time for, for any reason. It, it, it's simply not available. And in terms of thinking about long-term research is having to think about, are is there ever going to be a time when these things are going to be really widely publicly available? Or are you having to apply and request permission to get access to recordings, which are, you're, I mean, when you're asking permission, one might one knows that might not be granted. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's there's some tensions there with that standard axiom that justice has to be seen to be done. I mean, it just seems like what you're describing is it's very hard to actually, if you're not a player, mm -hmm. it's hard to actually see what's going on. That's interesting. Um, do you get any sense of whether um, prosecutors or defense attorneys are kind of how they're managing this? I think sort of in the beginning, very stressed and overwhelmed, like like anybody else, this, you know, trying to then be able to hold these kinds of, of hearings from from your home or from whatever, wherever, I think you end up with a bit of both. In some sense, there's a there's improved efficiencies, particularly for defense counsel, they're not running around to multiple courtrooms or different courthouses, and right. they're in the same place, but you still have the same challenges of trying to get all the players on the line at the same time that I think I think some of the efficiencies are a little bit overstated uh, and that you in listening to what's happening in court, you would still hear long delays of trying to get an accused in custody from their cell to where there's to have their court appearance. Difficulties with sureties calling in to help bail somebody out and their call being dropped and not being able to reconnect. So I know from some of the prison research, I mean, there are in lots of locations or some locations, you know, um, these virtual courts that people attend while incarcerated. Did they just piggyback on some of that infrastructure or did they just cobble something together frantically? I think I think a little bit of it was piggybacking. I mean, there are other jurisdictions in Canada that have really moved to this virtual model long ago and, and have a lot more experience doing these kinds of things. Um, Ontario did hold sort of some video hearings, often just simply remands, not where you were then sort of actually doing something meaningful in a particular case. And so I think that was part of the challenge is the technology was simply not already 
in place and where it was in place, it's, you know, that connection to the detention center or to the police uh, detachment that it, it can be really difficult to be able to properly see and hear what's happening. So there's lots of different, I don't know what you would call, different types of people, different, that this affects people differently. I'm just curious if you get any sense of how some of this might affect different you know, categories of individuals who end up going through the system. Absolutely. I think that we, we look at a system that has always been difficult for many folks, and then you think about sort of the layers of difficulty that this presents for others. So, I mean, here, if I'm thinking about Indigenous people or racialized folks, we can think a little bit more broadly about differential infection rates um, that we've seen in some communities. Uh, you can also think about enhanced vulnerabilities that some people have on account of poverty, um, inability to distance from folks, more densely housed, uh, underlying health conditions. And then sort of tie that together with these often being communities that are over surveilled over the over policed and over monitored and so that you're really then you're sort of taking some of the issues we saw before and really just adding on to those right um with other groups of people I think about have come to mind are women, um, and we know that women are one of the fastest growing custodial populations, and we see women entering pretrial detention, and we get to this tension of traditionally a lot of women being in primary care roles, and what this then means in terms of being arrested and having restricted conditions, but layering on the challenges of everybody being home, needing to take care of schooling from home or working from home, the ability to quarantine and isolate, all of these being particularly problematic given um, a lot of the gender roles that people are living within. And I guess one of the things I'm interested in is kind of obviously, if you, as you started out with, um, a lot of this has become technological. How does this feed into concerns about sort of the digital divide, people's infrastructure, and not just the techno technological availability, but competence, familiarity, all that kind of stuff? Uh, and I think that's that's such a huge point. We often start with this assumption that you know having a simple access to these things is readily available, and well, for many it is, but that that sort of precludes those who it's not available. And I don't know that we've really carefully thought about how to best reach those folks or how to facilitate this happening where at least before so you could simply you showed up and I mean that came with other barriers but this uh this divide and whether it's um differential reception and internet access that having the necessary hardware to be able to to do this um but needing to be mindful of what you pointed out the competence like the the capacity and the ability to use these kind of technologies particularly if you're unfamiliar you're stressed um and feeling that there may be serious consequences to you if you sort of fail to do this and I think the other thing that needs to be mindful of is that it's one thing for someone to be able to have a quiet direct conversation with the court that that completely ignores what that means for people who have children at home for people who are precariously housed and living in communal spaces where you can imagine a court being again understandably frustrated because maybe they can't hear they're being interrupted but that lived reality of people um, trying to do these things remotely has to be considered so what so the logistics of this would this be hypothetically someone in their home zooming in or whatever or whatever the equivalent would be yes uh, that's largely been what it is i've heard a lot of people talking about doing it from their cars or or right. whatever um outside of the there i mean some courts have done different things where they've allowed like very skeletal staff to appear um but the expectation is that most people are are, are calling in and it may simply be a room with a justice and a and a clerk who's keeping track of everything yeah i'm just thinking out loud as we're as we're talking here i mean this is 
Um, there's always questions about stigma and how people are interpreted by their appearance. This adds, adds a whole other layer of interpreting people's lives and life conditions if you're viewing their home, essentially, or, in their, or whatever passes for their, their living conditions. I mean, it's a whole other, I don't know if it's necessarily stigmatizing, but it's an, it's an interesting new bit of interpretive material that's, that becomes part of the process. Well, yes, and, and we think sort of about this idea of how this is allowing sort of the eyes of the state into into private spaces. I've made that argument in the past about the use of surety supervision that they're acting sort of as you know as third party police, and now they have to report to the state that they get access to private spaces the state wouldn't have access to. And now we have a computer. Well, that's even better. Um, and that being able to capture someone, how you talk to somebody, whatever's going on in your background, the things that you may not control, um, or again, people that perhaps aren't in an indoor space, whether you know you're walking and talking it into your like what what does this look like and then what sort of assumptions are we drawing about people from how they may present in a video context yeah that's that's really fascinating um in terms of um one of the real developments in the last several years has been uh, a proliferation of new specialized courts is there any sense in which um, the COVID, what we're talking about, the, some of these technological things or some of these issues about uh, the invisibility of the process, does this play itself out differently in any of these courts or is this something we know anything about yet? Yeah, I, I, we don't know a great deal about it. I have heard sort of murmurings that some of these specialized courts aren't simply aren't operating. And so like, so for example, I've heard in some locations, the Gladue courts aren't specifically operating, I guess then meaning that uh, you don't technically need a Gladue court to be considered. Well, maybe, maybe we should just pause. I'm not sure kind of that everyone will know. Maybe you can just remind everyone what a Gladue court is. Yes, thank you. Uh, Gladue. So these are special courts that were developed after the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in the case called Gladue. Um, and it was really about trying to provide a courtroom that was going to be more focused and more conscious on the colonial histories and history of intergenerational trauma uh, that Indigenous people have, have faced. And so in establishing a separate court where there are enough people coming through, uh, there are other measures that are put in place to try to be more culturally sensitive. Right. Um, However, the idea is that any court can be constituted as a Gladue court by simply the, the participants you know, making some adjustments to how they approach the case. Right. But so we have, I mean, so we have the specialized Gladue courts. We, we can also think about drug treatment courts and domestic violence courts, community courts, there's sort of a variety of specialized courts. Um, and the one thing that comes to me around all of these models is that it requires regular contact with the court. Anytime you're into one of these specialized pieces, you're generally reporting the, to the court with much greater frequency than people in, in the more sort of regular traditional process. And so I'm curious about how it is that's being sort of shifted and, and changed. Uh, these courts also very much invoke or bring in community sort of agencies and members. And again, I don't know how their access to these proceedings is being is being facilitated in these spaces. Right, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's important. Um, now, sort of there's lots of challenges here. Is there anything big picture that we might think, or is there, is there any way to conceive that positives might come from this or, um, something that might be beneficial in terms of planning or rationalizing or something like that? Yes, I, I mean, I think if, if we had to sort of think about, you know, what could be, I mean, are you asking sort of what could be done differently or what kind of message to take from this? Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty remarkable transformation in a very, very old process. And sometimes you learn things by doing that. Have, have we learned anything that might be useful in terms of improving things or, or alternatively, 
have we learned anything useful about we absolutely do not want to do this? That's another yeah. kind of lesson. So I, I mean, I think some of the things that need to be remembered here are sort of an uptake of technology a little sooner. I mean, some of these things have been being advocated for, for a long time. And if these things had been in place, we could have imagined this going a bit smoother. Um, I think we need to, we need much greater transparency here, um, whether the transparency in terms of access numbers um, in so that people can, could call into the court if they're, in, they're inclined to do so. I think also there's, you know, there's been very limited press releases that talk about reductions in the pretrial detention population, um, but no discussion about sort of, you know, how, how was that achieved? Who's being let out? What is, why have we seen this drop? And reasons we need to know is to understand how we can try to sustain those things. Um, but given that there was almost a 30% drop in those in remand, what to me this tells us is we have the capacity to reduce our reliance on incarceration. That in times of an emergency, a public health emergency, we could apparently do the impossible and let all kinds of folks out. And so I think what this means is that not only should we be pursuing more aggressively decarceration, um, but is also thinking about like, who we're letting in, having go in there in the first place. Um, and that that is really part of, of the effort of keeping people out of custody. Now, I haven't seen these statistics yet. Do we have statistics now on sentencing patterns over the last year in terms of whatever that might look like? Not that I am aware of. I think we're still a little bit, a little bit early for some of those things to, to come out. The stuff that I heard were, were through special releases coming out from like Statistics Canada, because other otherwise, I mean, we're usually a year to two year delay in, in the release of data. So it will be interesting. I've sort of I've made some inquiries to, to folks about how they think issues around time to trial are going to be dealt with, how we're going to be providing credit for pretrial time. And nobody seems to have any real impressions that this is going to result in significant differences. Um, but I'd be very interested to see particularly around the arguments around detention as to whether, because I mean, the, the courts have had multiple decisions of trying to figure out, do we think about the vulnerabilities that an individual has and them needing to demonstrate that custody is a particularly dangerous place for them, or this being applied in a more blanket way that it's da dangerous for everybody. And on that, that that's simply enough that you don't have to demonstrate a personal uh, enhanced riskiness. Right. And if, and if there's if this plays out in the remand population with a reduction of shorter sentences, you know, the grind that goes on in remand of people, maybe they've, you know, hypo, you know I'm, I'm hypothesizing here, but it might be that those people have ended up somewhere else instead of that revolving door of very brief uh, sentences. But again, I'm speculating. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Yes. I, and I think it's, it'll always be that tricky piece too, because most sentences that we impose are really short. And so it will be interesting to sort of see if perhaps that's enough of an impetus to push more community-based sanctions, acknowledging that the, the risk of going into custody, why are we now sentencing someone there for a week or 30 days or something like that? Right. So sort of coming near the end here, I guess the thing that I'm always interested in uh, coming back abstracting up to the discipline, I guess. Are there things that you think that criminology might have learned from this that maybe we didn't know already? Or the other side of that, are there, are there things that the whole COVID situation and relationship to courts and sentencing, did it confirm things that why we knew this and this just really brought this home for us? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know that anything I have found would be terribly surprising in the sense that I think it continues to be really difficult to get access to good data to answer all of the kinds of questions that we very legitimately have, um, whether that's in terms of it being available, made available at all, or the time lag in getting those things. I think also is the sense that the, the system 
can change, which in some ways makes sense. I mean, that's often what people's work is, is targeted towards, is trying to make, to make adjustments, but that change is often resistant bumpy and real genuine concerns of sort of returning to a status quo that as particularly for in the context of a pandemic, how sort of those initial fears and anxieties may have really dramatically shifted behavior and then how we really sort of start settling back into the, the standard way of, of doing things. And so my sense then is, is that even when things appear to change, they may very well be staying pretty close to the same. And, and I'll give an example of that. Looking at, I, so I observed over 80 days of, of bail court in Ontario during the pandemic. Um, and when I compare that to some of my earlier data, um, they, it looks remarkably similar. The only real sort of adjustment seemed to be a reduction in the use of sureties. And we don't know if that's on account of the Supreme Court decision in Antic, or if that's, you know, in a response to the pandemic. And so I think then what it says is that we can have enormous change all over the place, but at its core, still not be necessarily making as much change, or that that change is temporary. Yeah, I guess this is the real, you know, $10,000 question is, are the people who are operating the system seeing is this as an opportunity to sort of introduce some changes that kind of might be beneficial or is this just a holding pattern until we can return to kind of the the good old days of how things used to work not knowing yeah. how <laughs> inefficient and ridiculous that was well and it is you know i mean all of this virtual like all this uptake of technology has incredible potential i mean it, it really could streamline so many things i mean why do we have everybody come to court all at the same time this has the capacity to particularly help in remote or indigenous communities where this could facilitate enhanced access and remove some of the barriers of, you know, going to and from court. Yet at the same time, sort of harking back on some of the work by Webster in 2009, where she looked at video remand courts was that all this ended up doing was creating more adjournments and more processes that then had to happen because there seems to be something different about a, a, an individual standing in person directly before you and this disembodied voice on the phone. So maybe the, the human being there provides a sense of urgency that we have to deal with this or, you know, the, the, this can't be postponed yet again. I guess, you know, the, you know, you know, this area better than me. When I think of your area, I think the figure who, who sort of dominates the, the literature is Malcolm Feely and sort of the process is the punishment. I guess to conclude, is this, does this, do you see this as contributing to that ongoing problem of the process being the punishment? Or do you think some of that, you know, the punitive aspects of the process might be rectified or addressed? I guess it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I do think the process is the punishment. I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's a small proportion of people that are ultimately convicted and sentenced to jail. So we're looking at, you know, sort of gradations below that and that with uncertainty as to whether we're going to convict somebody, we extract something through through this process. And what I sort of worry about is, you know, thinking about the way this will generate new and different ways that the process now punishes. So here I'm thinking about defense counsel's challenge with developing rapport with somebody that they never actually see in person. Um, I'm thinking about the challenges of facilitating confidential conversations, even with a client and the lack of infrastructure available to have that so that the court's doing something basic, like just put the phone down so this conversation can happen and pick it back up. Right. And so I think those kinds of examples, some of these might be smoothed out in time, but the, we're, we're going to watch additional things come into play that will be just the same, but wearing a different costume. 
Okay, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Unless there's something uh, you think that we uh, you sh we should let people know that we haven't talked about. No, I think uh, I think that does cover everything. Thank you, Kevin. Excellent. No, thank you very much, and uh, I will talk to you later. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can find us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or most other major podcasting apps. Also, remember to follow us on Twitter at CCR underscore U of A. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research, so you can keep up with all of our great content coming out.